0: Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you. So last week, we, uh, we began a new sermon series on uh, John's first epistle called 1 John. Uh, John wrote a good bit of the New Testament. He wrote, of course, the fourth gospel. He penned the book of Revelation. And after 1 John, there's Second and Third John, and, which are just like two more letters. So John is a super interesting guy. John was a Jew, and he had certain ideas about what God was like. John, like most Jews of his day, according to the the rabbinic writings that we have, uh, they probably participated in endless debates about what they thought God was like. But then John met God. All of his ideas about God were thrown out and sifted because he met Jesus. Jesus. In fact, he was Jesus' best friend. And these two did everything together. John had front row seats to all of Jesus' miracles. He was there when Jesus hung on a cross. He witnessed the resurrection. He even had breakfast with Jesus before uh, Jesus would be ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is why John begins his letter that we talked about last week by saying, Look, everyone, I'm not not philosophizing, I'm not theologizing about God. I was with him. I've seen him with my own eyes. We've hugged each other, right? I want you to know this Jesus. I don't want you just to know about him. I want you to know him. I want you to have certainty and clarity about God, Now, this is significant because John is writing in 1 John roughly 80 80 AD, which is about 50 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. So in all of his friends that were also with Jesus, they've already been put to death. John is the only disciple that has not been martyred, and he miraculously survived being boiled alive. So John lived most of his adult life in the region of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, And uh, he has made a new life for himself. Now, this is far from Jerusalem, and he really wants his new friends to know Jesus, but they've never met him. Uh, They weren't there in Jerusalem 50 years before. And it's kind of like um, what Jeff talked about last week with with the moon landing, right? There were people in 1969 who were there. But then there's this whole new generation who came afterwards and crazy people started convincing others that the moon landing was a hoax, right? And well, in a similar way, the people in Ephesus started having a few weird ideas about God. So John, as their pastor, he writes this letter, but it's kind of like a sermon letter. I mean, it's a letter but he's pretty preachy, right? He, he, he's going to start meddling. And in verse five, and so we're going to see here this morning of our text, John, we're going to see that he begins by saying, listen up, everyone, listen up. This is the message that we have heard from him. Like we heard from him, from his mouth, and we proclaim this to you. We're not voting on this, We're not taking our cues from culture about what God is like. I'm going to tell you because I was there, right? And this is not John being bossy. It's just that John has a knowledge of Jesus that he calls fellowship. John wants to give his friends a fullness of joy, the same joy that he has. He wants his friends to share in that intimacy with God. John wants his friends to know God For who he truly is, so that they can have intimacy and certainty. Now, in our passage this morning, as we're gonna see, John is going to borrow from the metaphors uh, of his culture using this imagery of light and darkness. So, we're gonna see again in the second part of verse five, he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, just bear with me a little bit as I set this up before we dive into this text. To say that God is light, it speaks to his purity and to his holiness. Of course, we we intuit that. But light actually also speaks to his judgment. Light is the agent that reveals the truth and exposes any sin. And there is no darkness in him. Now, I just want to pause there because this word sin is uh, it's really culturally uncomfortable. You start talking about sin, people get a little uneasy, and I get it. I get it. Really, y'all know that Christians are the only people who use that word sin, right? You don't see the word sin when a judge writes an opinion or makes a ruling on a court case. It's a very unique word. Now, if John is writing so that you and I can have certainty about God, then why does he begin by talking about light and darkness? And why is sin going to be at the very front of this conversation? And here's why. Here's why. And and if you're uncomfortable with this word sin, I'm just going to invite you to suspend your judgment. Another day, I promise I'm going to make a more complex argument for why this notion and doctrine of sin is really good for a pluralistic society. I think I can mount that case. But for now, just suspend your judgment. All right. All right. Here's here's why sin's going to be at the front of this conversation Your certainty about God Your certainty about God is tied to your hidden interests About who you need or want God to be This has nothing to do with science See, you and I see ourselves a certain way Some of us see ourselves as good people And either we have no need for God Or we simply think God's going to give us a fast pass Because, you know who wouldn't like us, right? Or some of us see ourselves as really bad. We've done really regrettable things, and we need God to either not exist or not care. But in either case, in all of these cases, we have these hidden interests, and we are highly motivated to visualize, visualize God in a way that suits and accommodates our interests. The problem is, is God is who he is. And in order for you and, I, for you and I to have certainty and intimacy and fellowship with God, then you and I need to align ourselves, you need to align yourself with the reality of God. And in order to do that, you have to get real gritty, honest about the darkness that resides in your heart. That's what the Bible calls sin. This doesn't have to be an exercise in self-hatred, right? Right? simply an exercise in joyful humility. Gritty, but joyful humility is the key to experiencing God deep in your soul. So that, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Our experience in certainty with God depends not on rational arguments primarily, but on what we do with our sin so that we can see what God does with our sin. And that's going to be the outline of our study this morning, what we do with our sin, and then what God does with our sin. So with that introduction, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? This is the very best part of the whole sermon, so please listen carefully. And let me just say that I am going to be reading from 1 John chapter 5 and then through verse 2, chapter 2. Uh, In your your bulletin, it goes all the way to verse 6, but I'm going to stop at chapter 2. That's where my exposition will end. And even though the logic of the pericope goes all the way to verse 6, but hear now the reading of God's word. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. In 2012, 2012, uh, a great movie starring Denzel Washington. Does he make bad movies? I don't think so. Uh, Denzel Washington, he came out with the movie Flight. Many of you might have seen this. So this movie, it ends with Whip Whitaker, the the Washington's character, the main character. He's in jail telling his story, explaining to his uh, fellow inmates that although he's in jail, he's never been freer never more full of life. Now this is in stark contrast to the rest of the movie. See, Whip Whitaker's life was characterized by drinks and women and cocaine, and he would get drunk and then he would take an upper so that he could become a functional airline pilot. He's always flying high, and then one day his plane had a technical failure, and in the most amazing way, He expertly lands this plane against all odds with limited casualties. Now, according to all of their flight simulations, no one could do what he did. There was only one problem, that when he was in the hospital for recovery, his blood was tested, and the toxicology reports show that he was not sober while flying the plane. And the whole plot of the movie is following Whip's journey to see if he would be exposed For the drunk and druggie that he is, will he be honest about the darkness that resides in his soul? There's this one particularly uh, illuminating conversation that he has with a friend who is a recovered addict, a druggie, named Nicole. He gets real stubborn. I mean, he's screaming at her. He says, I'm different than you. I choose to drink. And Nicole says, really? Because I don't see a lot of choice going on here. So Whip wants to be like the pilot of his own life, but he's totally self-deceived. He is not in control. He's absolutely enslaved, and deep down, he knows it. At the very final hearing in the movie, he's actually drunk, right? But he has this moment of clarity, and to everyone's surprise, he confesses, right? He, He tells the truth. And although there were some consequences, his confession, the truth, sets him free. And with time from jail, he experiences profound freedom and restored fellowship with his family and all those people that he alienated. Now, this movie is brilliant because it tells our story. Are you and I going to acknowledge our true selves as the ones who are capable of deep destruction Are we going to pursue the light of honest intimacy and fellowship, or are we going to continue in the facade, right? Fake it till you make it, and just stay in the shadows. That's what's at stake with the apostle John here. See, John knows that we want sweet and free fellowship with God and with one another, but God is light. And that light is aimed at us to expose us, not not to hurt us, but to move us into honest relationship so that there is this fundamental integrity between our words and our actions and our lives. And and that's what explains the series of if statements You see this in verses, uh, every every verse, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 all start with the word if. Look at verse um, 6, 8, and 10 with me. Verse 6 says, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, right? Right? There's no alignment between words and actions. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we just deceive ourselves. Verse 10 If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. In verse 8, it says, if we have no sin. And in verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned. Now, that's important. You follow that. That's the difference between having a sin nature and committing actual sins. Both. Both. Admitting that we have a sin nature and committing actual sins are really important to acknowledge. Right? We have to be honest That our heart is dark and that dark heart actually does bad things. We don't don't say generic things like, you know, we're all just human. No, that's not what's going on here. That, That minimizes the issue, right? These broken hearts really do hurt people, right? So what do we do with our sin? Do we hate ourselves? No. We confess our sins and thus move into intimate relationship with God and man. So look, verse 9, he's saying, if we confess our sins, right? He's commending to us, confess our sins. So to confess it, to confess your sins is simply to align your words with your actions, right? Own your stuff. Look at verse 7 there. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now listen, this is not talking about moral perfection, right? He already said... You, you, You can't not sin. You'd be lying if you said you didn't, right? So he's not talking about moral perfection. This is talking about living in honest relationship and alignment of our word and our action. If we walk in the light, it says, we have fellowship with one another. Y'all see that connection? This is really interesting. Confessing, which is living honestly, living with a humble integrity, that is, confession is a humble continuity between our words and our actions. And that is the key to meaningful relationships, first with God and then with one another. See, John wants us, listen guys, John wants us to have certainty and intimacy and fellowship with God. Well, how do you, ha- how do, you do that? Well, you take your sin and you confess it and you walk with others In humble integrity. And in this way, the hidden interests, remember that we talk about, that are floating around in our heart, they begin to surface. And listen, that's the key to sweet friendships on any level. Not only with God, I'm talking about on any level, right? I mean, have you ever had that, like, one friend where you move beyond the basic formalities of generic relationships, right? If you ever have. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're truly known in that friendship. All your warts, right? All your mistakes, all your insecurities. You are fully known, top to bottom, and yet fully loved and accepted, right? And when that happens, there's this intimacy, right? Deep freedom, deep acceptance, and if confession makes that true with our relationship with one another, how much, so, how much more so with God above, right? Did you know that, that, that this, this phenomena that I'm describing is one of the main reasons why Christians have always confessed their sins together at church? Now, I know in the 20th century, like in the evangelical church, we've stopped doing this, but, but this has been the practice for 2,000 years. Like when we do corporate confession of sin, We're not just trying to be ritualistic, y'all, right? The church has done this, and what it's doing is it's offering a kind of model prayer then that we can take home and personalize it so that we're doing this all week long so it's a part of the rhythm of grace in our souls. And when we confess and agree here at church that we're all really broken, it creates a kind of safe intimacy between us. Confession and fellowship is the key to enjoying God's light. In a very practical way, every Sunday morning, we all gather here for very intentional fellowship. And it's a gritty, honest fellowship where we we take off our masks and we pause to confess our darkness and we bring alignment to our words and our actions. And when this sacred time together is an afterthought in a person's spirituality, what we sometimes call churchless Christianity, it's just a matter of time until that person loses certainty and intimacy with God. Listen, when your relationship with God is exclusively private, without the messiness of a church, you'll stop having voices that contradict you. (laughs) You'll say things like, I just feel distant from God or worse or worse. God's enemies will look an awful lot like your enemies (laughs) or God's virtues will and God's politics will look just like yours. You know, this is what we call like the spiritual echo chamber, right? We're all just deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. When you do that, you're just listening to yourself confusing your voice for God's voice. And our words aren't as inspiring as God's. You will make God in your own image. And when that happens, you're completely detached from the true God. You'll stop getting new words to confess your darkness. And then your spirituality turns into a puppet faith. And you can't have a real and intimate relationship with a fake God or a God that's made in your own image. So what do we do with our sin? We confess it in gritty and humble and non-judgy fellowship so as to bring alignment and integrity to our words and our actions, you see. But that's just the half of what we see in this passage. The experience of intimacy and certainty with God also comes when we understand what he does with our sin. It wasn't too long ago now, uh, I was with a woman, who was planning her own funeral, and uh, she had terminal cancer. She had been in church her entire life, but even still, she was, you know, she was quite scared. And she asked me, she says, is it, um, is it okay to be scared? Well, I said, of course it is. You know, any new experience is scary, so, even more so death. That's, I said, that's a perfectly appropriate emotion, right? I wanted to I, wanted, I didn't want to undercut her confidence as if to say, you know, if you really had faith, you would just be so courageous, right? Just be chill while you die. I didn't, I didn't want to do that because that's a lie, by the way, all right? Um, I wanted to ensure that it's, it is scary, that Jesus himself, the night before he died, sweat blood, it's scary. But then she asked me a, di- a deeper question, one that um, I thought she would have known. She asks, Ronnie, How will I know if he will receive me? How will I know if I'm enough? She's asking, you know, what what, what happens if there's some complication at the gates, you know, or something, put it that way, right? And this is kind of when I leaned in a little bit. I said, Why does your father in heaven love you? And she says, I don't know why. He shouldn't. I feel like a fraud. I'm just glad that Jesus wasn't a fraud. And I said, that's it. That's it. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you deserved, and his blood cleanses you from all your sin. And if you have a problem at the gates, just call Jesus the righteous, the non-fraud who loves frauds, He will be your advocate, as John calls him in chapter 2, verse 1, your lawyer. He's your advocate with the Father. Your certainty, I said, is tied to Christ's blood. Not whether you were a good mom, not whether you were a good teacher, not whether you were a good church pianist, none of that. It's all Jesus. Don't you dare rest on your own resume. That's what's at the heart of John's words here, y'all. After John tells us what we must do with our sins, he allows us to see what God does with our sins. In verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light, and that's not walking in moral perfection, remember, but honest relationships of confession. If you walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us From all sin. And if you're dense like me, John doubles down in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And to, there's that word again, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are y'all listening? Do not tell me that this is not what your soul absolutely longs for, needs, and craves. I don't know if you believe this, but I know your soul wants me to be right about this. Your soul wants John to have nailed this. Many of you um, probably know Woody Allen. He's uh, he's a famous but savory comedian and film director. Uh, He has Jewish roots, but he's otherwise pretty skeptical. He once described himself as a militant Freudian atheist Uh, But woven into all of his movies, he has these themes of life and death and God and no God and religion. These are sort of giant existential questions, right? So when he was 72 years old, he had an interview with Newsweek and he says, this is what he says, he says that he lies awake at night, terrified of the void. And he suggested in that interview that perhaps to have never been born could be the biggest blessing one could have in life. In that same interview, this is 2008, he's, he put it this way. He says, so why go on? I can't really come up with a good argument to choose life over death, he says, except that I'm too scared, right? He says that, uh, making films offers no reward beyond distracting him from his plight. He, he claims that the payoff is in the process. He says, he goes on to say, he says, I need to be focused on something... So that I don't see the big picture Your perception of time changes as you get older Because you see how brief everything is You see how meaningless I mean, he goes, I don't want to depress you But it's a meaningless little flicker When he was 78 He was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal About his movie um, Magic in the, Midnight, in the Moonlight And he referred to life as tough, brutal, grim, meaningless grind full of heartache and tragedy, accruing to nothing. In the end, he says, you realize that you're just a human being on the face of the earth, an insignificant agglomeration of cells and neurons, and eventually that expires, and eventually everything expires. It's terrifying, he says. Earlier in his career, he quipped, he says, De- death doesn't really, doesn't really worry me that much. I'm not frightened about it. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? But Woody Allen, listen, you guys, he was asked, if God did exist, hypothetically, if God did exist and you could talk to him, what would you want to hear from him? And he says, simple, three short words, you are forgiven. Can you hear like both the uncertainty and yet the longing in those words? Can I suggest to you that everything that he believes about God is tethered to his existential angst? This isn't a science problem, this is a soul problem. And this isn't just Woody Allen, this is true for us. We don't believe in order to love. We love in order to believe. And so we have to be crystal clear what we must do with our sin. But equally, you must be enchanted by what God does with our sin. I mean, enchanted by it. So why do we love? And I'll just conclude with this point. It is because Jesus, chapter 2, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You know what propitiation is? It's kind of an old word. Here's a picture of it. I love art. Art has a way of um, preaching to us. All art, not just Christian art. You don't need to go all Thomas Kincaid to have good art. Art is beautiful. It tells us something. It preaches to us. This is Christian art. Sorry that the, the lamp is burned into this or whatever. But this is, um, this is propitiation. So God is Light. God's light is so brilliant that it violently purges the darkness. God so loves this world that he will do anything. He he loves it so much that he will purify all of it. No injustice, no darkness will stand. But see, here's what that means. Is that none of us can stand. Because when we're humble and gritty and honest... The darkness of sin, it's not out there. It's in here. It's in our hearts. But that is not the end of the story. God's brilliant and violent holiness and light was set upon his own son. Darkness was punished and cleansed. Jesus Christ, who had no darkness, the righteous one, took God's justice upon himself, and sin was paid for. And now you and I can stand before God and still cry out for justice without being crushed by it, right? And and, and all we're left with is intimacy and, and fellowship and certainty. And this isn't just for you and I, you and me. This is for Dorado and Condado, and for Guaynabo, the whole world. This is so inclusive. The whole world has a way out, not just the good people. This is a story that is so beautiful and heroic. This is a beauty worth emulating. A person can fall in love to this story. And when you love, then you can believe. Then you can have intimacy. Then you can have a deep experience of certainty. That's what John wants for you. That's what I want for you. May God bless his word. Amen.